maybe my life's work is to stop being brave. Just give in to me, to who I am, to my fears. They are mine, for Christ's sakes. Shan't I claim the characteristics that have been donned specifically to me? Welcome to Daring to Tell, the podcast where writers read their true stories of personal daring and then talk about writing and life. I am your host, Michelle Rado. Nothing's gonna make me brave. Nothing's gonna make me brave. Nothing's gonna make me brave except doing what makes me scared. In July of 2009, I was invited to teach an audio production workshop at the Banff Center in Alberta, Canada. It was an interesting program in that the students, there were only two of them, were residents for the program and the faculty rotated from week to week. Catherine Vasilopoulos was one of those students. And the Banff Center itself was sort of the palette, if you will, for them to create any kind of audio project of their choosing. Catherine was producing an audio documentary on Pauline Oliveros, a composer who was also in residence there at that time. And the documentary was about her Deep Listening Institute. Deep listening. How perfect. Because that pretty much nailed it. What we all did there in that time together was deep listening to each other, to our ideas and projects, to radio shows and performances that inspired us. We were all having such a good time together that they actually petitioned the program's leader to request that I stay longer than my contracted time And she agreed, so I was deeply moved by that. Catherine and I kept in touch through the years, and deep listening has done her well in her career. She went on to become her own boss with a very successful voiceover career. We'd write to each other from time to time with silent periods long enough to allow me to forget about that magical time in Banff. But then one of us would reach out again through the void and be there to listen to each other and reconnect. When Catherine told me more recently that she is now the host of a fairly new podcast called And So She Left, I was so excited for her. I checked it out and it is a beautiful production. She draws on practiced skills of deep listening as she connects with women who have made leaps of their own to leave a job and break out on a path of their heart's choosing, just like Catherine did. And I also learned more recently, she is also an artist and a musician And that strangely, we have nearly identical floor runners in our houses, which is something that we caught by chance when sharing some photos with each other. Last July, I read one of my own essays on this podcast, and July is the month Phil and I moved from Boston to Maine, as well as the month when I did that trip to Banff. So that is why I thought it would be the perfect time to share another one of my essays with you with my former student, 
audiophile colleague and dear friend in the guest hosting seat. Here she is, Catherine Vassilopoulos. Michelle, I am so honored and pleased and just excited to be here because, as you know, it's been 14 years since the first day we met. I know. And it's just, it coincides so well yeah. with, um, you know, that anniversary when we met at the Banff Center in Canada all those years ago when I was an audio engineering student and you came in as a mentor from Boston. And it was just so exciting to meet you and to have my boundaries pushed and to have all these <laughs> new pieces of knowledge that helped me become a better engineer and a better producer. And I'm just will be eternally grateful to you for that experience. And I'm just so excited to be here today to be on your podcast and to hear more about what you have to say and your essay. Yes. And I will say that that time in Banff was equally thrilling for me. I could hardly believe I got the invitation to teach audio production there. And it was it was really amazing. And I am far from someone who considers myself a teacher, but this setting was very special because it was so personal. I think the intimacy of it is what helped it to work. So Yes, it, it was a small group. It was a very intimate setting in the mountains of the Canadian Rockies. Yeah. And we had opportunities to have access to a beautiful library and recording studios and spaces to just be and think. And that in itself is a, such a rarity because we're always so busy and we're always yeah. so confronted with so much information through you know, social media. And back then, I guess it wasn't as prevalent. I know. We, we were lucky back then that the, the iPhones exactly. had just, just come out, I think, or they were going to come out. Yeah. And so we had um, opportunities to be in quote unquote old fashioned settings and to have those moments of growth and learning. And I remember seeing my first bear with you when we went driving and we went to yep. Lake Louise and walked through the woods and I don't recall any bug incidents, though, just to be honest, I don't. I do. I do. do. Really? Yes, I remember a conversation. I'm going to save that story for later, but w okay. I will go into the bear story, too, because that was the first time I had seen a bear as well. And it was one of those sort of classic scenarios. We were out driving, I guess it was, to Lake Louise, and you see all these cars pulled over on the side of the highway, and I remember them saying... It's a grizzly. It's a grizzly. And I am going, oh, my God, this is what they tell you not to do. Like, don't get out of your car. And everyone's jumping out of their car. And exactly. I remember I being like little miss freaked out. I was like, we shouldn't get out of the car. Let's not. And it's like, it's fine. It's way down the road. And I saw it way down the road. And I think it might. Was it a mama with her cubs? Do you remember? I remember people saying that it was a the size of it was more like a teenager. It wasn't a baby, but it wasn't an adult. Right. Yeah. And it was just foraging around the train tracks because that's where yeah. all the big trains with grain would pass and the grain would slowly yeah. jump like fall out and then they would find food there but unfortunately that's where they also get hit oh. so that's the story I remember yeah, hearing from yeah. other people that got out of their cars I'm like no maybe we should just keep going I know I was like <laughs> um let's get back in the car so we both survived which yes. is fantastic we lived to tell, <laughs> the, tale. To tell the tale <laughs> exactly so continuing on Continuing on, I'm just really excited to hear you read your, your essay on your life in Maine and how life has changed for you and what kind of realizations you've come to not being in the big city 
and seeing how you're encountering your newfound adventures and also the fears that go along with changing environments and going to a new place. And the setting is super different. So do you want to talk a little bit about that before we start? Yeah, it it has just been so different. And one thing that you got to experience was being on this newsletter list that I had started right before we moved. I definitely had the sense that okay, this is going to be very different. And I was thrilled as all get out to to move from Boston to Maine. Coincidentally, a pandemic happened in the interim, which was not what was what we thought might happen. So I've loved books and stories when it's sort of like a year in the life of something. And I thought, well, it would be a good writing discipline to sit down every Friday morning and write what happened this week. And I started it right before we left and we happened to move on a Friday. And that was the only day I did not put out a newsletter on a Friday for what was happening. And before we left, it was like craziness of getting ourselves up and out of the city. And then, oh, Landing in a place that we, first of all, were just thrilled. You know, my husband, Phil, had just retired. I was leaving a 30-year career of broadcasting at the same time. And we were very excited because it was going to be a chance for us both to start exploring sort of our creative ideations. But I never really quite imagined that I would be living in a big old farmhouse. Although it was, once we started looking around, I was like, that that would be really cool. Like I very much gravitated to the older sorts of places. Um, and I loved the idea of having a big backyard, simultaneously knowing that I have had this lifelong aversion, we could call it mildly, to bugs. So that was one factor that played prominently in quite a few of the newsletters that I would put out. And the practice of writing weekly was better than anything I could have imagined because I sent it out to sort of a closed list of personal friends and colleagues. So I got a lot of feedback too, like people who were excited to hear what we were going through. And just forcing myself to know that there's people who are expecting this, who want to know what's going on, and that through the week, what I would have to do is pay attention. Like, what is speaking to me today, this week? And it also helped me sort of document all the stuff we right, were going exactly. through. There was plenty of new house stuff, none mm -hmm. of it, anything, the stuff that we thought we might do so. I remember looking forward to those newsletters. It just kept me closer to you and knowing what was going on in your life. And it was an interesting time also because we were all locked in, locked down. Yeah. And now I'm watching you move your entire life. I'm going, wow, she has guts because <laughs> I'm stuck in my house and I'm not leaving unless mm. I absolutely have to. And you were doing it at a time where things were dangerous. And also, you know, you're, you're deciding that you're going to go in a different part of the world and you want to discover a bit more of your creativity. And I think that keeping people up to date with a weekly newsletter was brilliant. And I looked forward to seeing the progression and 
having also bought a house of my own and knowing what it was like to transition from an empty house, nothing in it, had no furniture, had nothing. And then going slowly, slowly, you have to figure out who are the tradespeople you have to align yourself with and what do I need to buy next and what needs fixing? And oh my God, there's a a millipede or a centipede in my basement and where is it going? And it's going from one corner to the other, like it owns the place and I'm just a visitor here. Exactly. So I totally related to those moments. And uh, I especially loved hearing about the repairmen coming in and out of the house. (laughs) I know because we were in a new place and it's not like we didn't know anybody. We did. We actually knew quite a few people in Maine, but the, the tradespeople who we like, there was a plumber, um, that was its own lifeline for, oh, they know about this thing. Like, what do they know? What can they tell us about our house that I don't know? You know, like is, are all the toilets going to flush? Is the oil tank, which turned out to be like rusted. And what you wouldn't want is the oil leaking out into your basement. That would be much worse to clean up some new oil tanks. So all these things was like, oh God. Yeah. So fortunately those have slowed down a little bit, but yeah. And then I stopped doing the newsletter after a year because I sort of thought, oh, it's been a year Mm -hmm. and I've done this podcast, but I haven't been doing the weekly newsletter and I've been toying with the idea of bringing it back, but I'm not sure yet. I'm not sure yet, but tell me about the other kind of writing that you've been working on and who was involved in that. So that is a memoir that is a work in progress that at the moment I am calling guts because I appreciate hearing your suggestion that it was brave to move in a pandemic. Sometimes I feel like the things that I do that seem brave are things that I have to do, not things Mm -hmm. that I choose to do, which is not true, of course. I choose the things that I have done. But my writing has been about learning to feel my own gut after two things, after recovering from gastrointestinal surgery that I had in 2015. And also I'll call it recovering from a Christian science childhood, um, which was challenging. It's hard for me to talk about. So I'm still working on my other writing, Mm -hmm. but I do still get moved to write essays a lot. And so this one had a few different moments that were like that glimpse of I have something to say. And so I started off with one thing and then it sort of ended up turning to something else. And I pushed at it for a while before I realized what it was that I Mm -hmm. might want to say. That's what I wanted to ask you about. So we, we start writing and we write, things come out and that's the first few moments are all the the sentences and just to get all the thoughts out. But then you reach a point where you you hit a moment of honesty. You have mm-hmm. to be honest with what you're writing. And how do you get to that point? I write to get to that point. I write to try and understand what it is I actually think and feel. And I do think that sometimes I can write around something And then I sit with it and I go, is that really what I have to say? And 
sometimes I'll go, yeah, or sometimes I'll go, it's not quite, and so I'll sort of push at it some more. But it's a lot of on and off time of writing, letting it sit for a day or two, going Mm -hmm. back to it. Sometimes I go back to it and I go, what the hell was I even talking about? I mean, that's, I'm sure, not uncommon, but sometimes I do say, okay, well, I had an inclination in this one direction, but it kind of just came to a dead end. So what's really more interesting? It's hard to describe, but it's sort of like pushing more and more into something that feels like what I really have to say. And I tend to write a lot of questions. And I feel like when I write myself into a point where I'm asking myself all kinds of questions, I'm getting close. That's very interesting. That's good, actually. It's the the minute you start not just writing sentences, but actually questioning and putting a, a thought process around the question, yeah. that develops the next level, I think, of uh, of the consciousness and what you need to put down on paper. Because as you said before, sometimes it's really hard or difficult to talk about something. And what do I want to say? But sometimes right. it's more about what do I want to write? If I write it, then it makes it even more concrete. And then, you know, you can edit whatever you've written. You can always go back yeah. and, f- and and mold it into the final piece. And that's what I love about writing as well. It's never Mm. the final piece the moment you put it down on paper. You can always go back and and fine tune it until you really get to the core of what you're trying to say. Yeah. 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 And I find it's an enjoyable process when I know I have a lot of energy behind the first draft or whatever that it's like, okay, I have something to say and I just let myself go with it. And as you can tell, I tend to be a person who goes off on tangents all the time. So sometimes I find myself writing through huge, long pages and pages of backstory to get to a point where I go, oh yeah, that's what I'm trying to. And those are the things where I go, okay, can I get to that point? in one sentence instead of 12 pages of digression. That's that's the digression is also rich. You can't discount Mm. it. I think you maybe need to get through all that to get to that final point. Otherwise that's your writing journey, your, your thinking journey. It's all part of it together. Thank you for saying that because that helps me feel a little more uh, confident about the digression. But it's true. I feel like there's a reason why I'm digressing here. If you just stay with me, I think you'll see where I'm going. So hang on with me just a bit longer. I'm getting there. (laughs) Stay with it. I know exactly. I always try. I would always try and thank people at the end of my newsletter. And I do it at the end of my Mm -hmm. podcast too. Like, if you made it all the way to the end, I really thank you for sticking with me here. So. That means a lot. That means a lot to listen because that's another huge theme in general is like, what does it mean to listen? Mm-hmm. So what do you want your audience to to feel or think while they're listening to you, either oh, your gosh. voice or your writing? Um, you know, I I guess it's a little embarrassing to say, like, I'm looking for validation. I, I do think I'm looking for a little bit of um, understanding because mm-hmm. I have trouble like understanding myself a lot of times. I mean, as I say, I really write to know what the heck I'm thinking and to feel like what I'm thinking is an okay thing to think. 
because I get scared about thinking things. So if I can get to the point where I can write them, that's sort of like step two. And if I can get to the point where I can say them out loud, which is why I also love hearing writers read their work. For me, that's another layer of, I can say this now. So I I hope that people like it. I That's really, feels funny, but I just hope people like it. I love that. The, the validation of your mind's reality or your, your mind's creativity. We all want that. We all want someone else to hear what we're thinking and say, yeah, that's that's exactly yeah. it. Or I agree with that or whatever it is, that validation that we all need, yeah. especially if you're creative, especially if you have a lot of ideas going on inside your head. Yeah. It's nice to... To get or that. maybe only one even, you know, like <laughs> you're working at a million ways to get to one idea. And another way of saying that, or maybe the deeper implication behind the validation is also connection. You know, I think oh, that that's mm-hmm. what a lot of people, a lot of writers that I've spoken with, it's about connection. I mean, because that's why I read, you know, mm-hmm. I I read because I want to connect with that person and what they've said to me. And so that is like one of the most valuable things I do as a human is to try and reach out and feel that connection in the other direction. So it's sort of the inverse of it. I think as humans, we connect through stories. It's a very powerful tool. We, we shouldn't discount that. that. That's why people learn by listening to a story with a moral in it, as opposed yeah. to having a, a PowerPoint presentation shown out to them or <laughs> I whatever. I know, I know. <laughs> I really love the stories. Even as a kid, you know, I would learn about life through stories. And yeah. I think that that yeah. resonates with a lot of people. They connect in, in that way and they recognize themselves too in either the characters or the storyline. Yeah, you know, when you say that, it reminds me of this thing I haven't thought of in a long time. But when I was in college, I sang with the college chorus there. And I've always loved singing. And that was sort of my my social experience at college was basically the chorus. And so the group of friends that I hung out with, many of us ended up being part of the organizational structure of the chorus. So they'd elect a president and vice president and blah, blah, blah. And I was... I've always been a very quiet person until I left Boston. So the thing is, the president of the chorus had to get up and give announcements every week at our rehearsal. And I don't know how this happened, but I ended up saying every week, you know, I have a funny story for you. And that sort of became my little thing, like, oh, Michelle, do you have a funny story this week? And I'd always tell a funny story. And now (laughs) I think back to that and I go, oh, that was part of something about me that was happening even way back then when I was quiet, shy girl that didn't want to, you know, I liked being in a chorus. I liked being with lots of people all Mm -hmm. (laughs) singing together. I didn't, I never liked being in the spotlight. But anyways, yeah, funny story. Well, I bet you your, your your peers perked up when you said, hey, I have a funny story. That's when people lean in. I I'm think like, so. Me, tell me. Yeah. What, what's the story? I can't remember what one of them was. I don't know. Maybe mm-hmm. maybe some of those folks would remember, but they were probably rather inane and rather digressive, I would imagine, too. But yeah, who knows? Can I ask you this? Do you ever feel like you have to push yourself to write 
Are there moments where you're like, I just don't feel like doing it, but I have to do it because I have to get the mm. thoughts out or like, how's, what's your process like? You know, that's a good question. I don't think so. Hmm. I never force myself to write, which is very interesting when I think about it. Cause when I sit down to write, it's usually cause I really want to. Interesting. And your podcast focuses a lot on, on other writers and authors yes. and can you share with us what you've learned so far by listening to other people's writing process and their storytelling? Um, yeah, I, I mean, what I'll say, it, it feels like a very selfish endeavor because what I get to learn is exactly what I think I need to learn to move forward with my own story. So I get to pick the writers and the books and the essays that I feel like have been instructive to me somehow in usually in their bravery. Like how, how did you find the wherewithal to say this out loud? That maybe is kind of the same answer. You have to just not care. Dare I say, mm. I, I don't know. Not caring not, is not a theme care. that's going to come up too. But not caring about what exactly? Not caring about what? Not caring ab that what I have to say is um, might hurt someone. Um, not caring that what I have to say matters, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. um, and is it important to say it out loud? You know, there's a lot of layers about that. Right. Oh, Catherine, you're scaring me now. <laughs> Why? With these questions. <laughs> Sorry, are we going too deep? <laughs> no. Hey. I like going, I like the I deep questions it. and I love That's the, right. I'm not really good at the, the, the chit chat and the, the, the superficial no, stuff. I love either. to just go into yeah, and yeah. dive in. And, no, it's, it is, it's scary to try yeah. and say, how, how did you find the courage to say this? I mean, there's the age old, like sometimes people don't write their stories for very long times until right, right. people aren't around anymore. Meaning why would it matter for me to share my story? Some people don't think they're important enough or the story yeah. is not important enough. Yeah. And that's not a good mindset to be in if you are a writer. I think right. you should just put the work out there. And regardless of what other people think of it, just be the artist and put the art out into the world. And beyond yeah. that, it, it doesn't belong to you anymore. People's opinions or criticisms or accolades, that belongs to them. That's very true. And... um it makes me think of the advice that you really should be writing for an audience of one. Like, is does it say what I want to say and what I getting back to that sort of um, what is the truth that I'm trying to get at through sharing the story? Yeah, the truth and the honesty of what you're putting down on paper. That's so yeah. important. It's such a, a key component of writing, especially when you're writing personal stories and things that really, really affected you or mattered to you, you need to be honest uh, mm -hmm. and, and find that personal truth. Otherwise, why do it? Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Why do it? Hmm. Are you ready to read? I am ready to read for, <laughs> for this. Yes. Uh, okay. This is called Brave No More. Phil's away right now. He's on his annual June trip to bring his mom to Cape Cod. 
a happy place she's returned to for more than 65 summers of her life. I don't fit in the car with everything that they pack up for her journey. Plus, I have a lot of work to do here and appointments to go to. So it's just me and Rocky, our cat, who requires playtime after his breakfast and demands treats promptly at 5.30 every evening. I've gotten better at being alone in our house since Phil has had to make several trips to New York this year to tend to his 98-year-old mom. Some of these stints have not been bad, but I have been graced with enough accumulation of time on this earth to discover that the things you go through once won't always go the same way the next time around or the next. Oh, they'll go along similarly enough just to trick you into thinking that you know something. Then, kapow, different, just like that. I've also been paying attention a lot more recently, not just since Phil's been gone, but before that too. I've been meditating. I've been reading books about the universe. I've read just enough about string theory and quantum physics to be fully dangerous in creating my own ideations on baffling and bizarre science theories that seem fictional but could be true. The idea of multiple universes is one that compels my imagination. An infinite number of universes where every possible option of action, choice, incarnations is not only possible, but necessary in existence somewhere. I also keep writing and listening and running. And I got the glimpse of this idea that nearly every moment on this earth can be an opening to another portal of experience. In my mind's eye, I see endless wormholes of possibility at every turn. It's turned out that it's not just Rocky and me in the house either. Since Phil's departure, I have come across a wasp, a daddy longlegs, several flying ants, a smaller black spider, a beetle, all inside the house. When I descended the stairs one morning, trying not to step on Rocky as he snaked back and forth in front of me in exactly the places where I planned to step, the very first thing my eyes fell on was a large black thorax and numerous angled legs in the middle of the kitchen floor. Alarm flashed through my thorax just seeing it. In the dim light and my morning blur, I had no idea what it was and if it would skitter, leap, or fly. I reached for the best invention ever, my bug Zuka. And after popping it into the suction capsule and examining it more closely, I ascertained it was a cricket. Only once I took the detachable capsule outside to empty it did I also ascertain it was dead. That morning, Rocky ran from room to room and corner to corner, throwing up clear spittle so many times I wondered which or how many bugs he might have consumed through the night. He has been on patrol constantly. He sits, looking intently under the refrigerator, behind the couch, into a corner, at the bathroom rug, his eyes wide, his head making tiny jerks this way and that. I get down on the floor to stare where he's staring, 
I see nothing. What's there that I can't see? That's always the question. It hardly seems possible that July of 2023 marks the end of our third year living on the mid-coast of Maine. When we bought this 200-year-old farmhouse with a pig weather vane atop its big vacant barn, we never fathomed that we would be heading north in the onset of a pandemic. This move was a serendipitous slice of grace that I never dare look at directly, but remain grateful for every day. I believe grace is rarely bestowed without some sort of cosmic balance. I have hated bugs since my earliest childhood. My mother has confirmed this with stories she tells from a time before my own memory. One story I'm always retelling is about two things I don't like, have never liked apparently, bright, sunshiny days and bugs. On a day of overwhelming glare, when I was maybe two or so and we were on a long ride, I was lying down in the back seat of the car. No one had child seats back then. The sun beat down on me as a fly buzzed about, and I became a whiny, broken record. Sunshine, buzz! Sunshine, buzz! Yes, that kind of nails it. Phil loves posing parlor questions. One that he came up with recently was, if you could go back as who you are now to something you did as a kid and try it again, what would it be? After retiring from his career in radio, he's at last had the time to fully immerse himself in music. He spent decades listening to it and programming it for others. Now he's been writing it and playing it. What if he had dug in more, dedicated himself more seriously to music way back when? He took piano lessons as a kid at the Maness School of Music in Manhattan, his hometown music school. He'd also been looking up his piano teacher, Mr. Goldberger, only to discover he had died in 2016. He was 90 years old. Phil regretted he hadn't found him in time to thank him for the musical foundation he had received. A fascinating tangent to this is about the death of his wife, who was a Holocaust survivor. David Goldberger tells it in an interview at StoryCorps, if you're curious. Phil's story made me think of my own piano lessons as a kid in my little central Massachusetts hometown. Kind of. My first piano teacher smoked during my lesson and one day spilled coffee all over me. This led me to a second piano teacher who would hold my hand under the piano. In spite of these speed bumps, I pushed on with my practicing, trying to advance to anything approaching fluidity. I felt the most progress after striking a deal with my dad that if he quit smoking, I'd practice for a half hour every day. This worked for quite some time until one day, again lying down in the back seat of the car, I detected a sting of tobacco smoke. He had succumbed to the pull for nicotine. I felt betrayed, so I quit practicing. Years later, he did quit smoking, yet I never resumed the piano in spite of occasionally thinking I really should. Did I wish I had kept at it? Well, sure, maybe found another teacher who didn't smoke or drink coffee or hold my hand during a lesson. But that wasn't the thing I had wished had been different. 
Later, when we were whizzing down Route 295 south for a trip into Portland, as we often do, I pondered Phil's parlor questions some more. What would I have done different as a kid? You mean like something I regret how it happened? Trying to get clarification on his question. Not necessarily a regret, he said. It doesn't have to be that, but something specific that you would do differently. Again, I mentally spun through my childhood, through scenes of awkwardness and discomfort. Was I ever at ease, I wondered? I could only come up with ways I'd scold myself for what I didn't do well, didn't like, was told I could or should enjoy or be better at. I hated gym, didn't do well in sports. I loved chorus and music in spite of my piano stumbles. I was aware that there were girls who were attractive and fit who wanted to be cheerleaders. They seemed to be a focus of attention. I didn't know how to want that, though I had the awareness that I should want what they had and looked like and did. Then a specific memory surfaced about Amy Siegel, who sat right behind me in a lot of my classes in junior high. She happened to have gone to the elementary school in town where many of the girls who turned out to be the popular ones had gone. And because of the friendship we struck due to being neighbors in class, she invited me to a birthday party at her house in the fancy part of town where most of them lived. Let's do some cheers, they decided, as an activity for the party. Cheers? It sounded too much like a voluntary gym class, not at all my idea of a good time. Besides, I knew not of such things. Why had I never even heard of doing cheers? Maybe because I was a self-conscious, chunky girl, unpracticed at hand-eye coordination. I didn't particularly like the outdoors either. It's where the bugs were. But we all tromped out to her backyard. Pairs of pom-poms were lined up in anticipation, and they all got into formation. Instinctually, I went to the back and the end. Someone started us off. Ready? Okay. There was clapping and stomping and shaking of the pom-poms high and low. I had to admit the pom-pom part was kind of fun. But I didn't know what I was doing. I tried to mimic their actions and their chants, but I felt like a goofball. I really hoped no one was looking at me. I wanted to disappear. I didn't belong. My insides relaxed when we got to go inside and eat some cake. I was good at that. And after my mother picked me up and took me back home to my little comfort zone, I somehow intuited that as much as I liked Amy, the popular crowd was not going to be for me. Would I have been truer to myself if I had just said no? No, thanks. I'm not into trying to be a cheerleader. I also know that I'm open-minded enough to imagine that maybe cheerleading might be something I really enjoy or turn out to be good at, especially if it's something every little girl is supposed to want to be. But it wasn't love at first cheer. I stuck with the activities I liked better and that seemed easier, like chorus and reading. But I was always left with the impression that easier must somehow be a cop-out. It kind of makes me think I just wished I had the confidence to say no to the stuff I tried to force myself to do, I continued with Phil. That feels lame, too. I wish I'd just not done stuff I didn't want. I might not have known I didn't like what it was until after I tried it, I concluded, still stumped by the question. I knew I had spent a lot of my time trying things other people thought that I should do. 
or try or like. Then I wondered this. Do I even know what I like? I puzzled through these thoughts again, the way my tongue continually grazes the edge of my most crooked tooth. These questions gathered the power of a burgeoning wave within me that led to a major declaration. Maybe my life's work is to stop being brave. Just give in to me, to who I am, to my fears. They are mine, for Christ's sakes. Shan't I claim the characteristics that have been donned specifically to me? Embarking on year four here in Maine makes things like my morning run feel more familiar. The cycle of the seasons is something I'm starting to notice. The other morning was one of those highly anticipated days when shorts were the better option than leggings. I didn't even need a light sweatshirt. The trees were fully leafed out and dandelion seeds were floating through the air everywhere like a kindly snow flurry. The heavy perfume of lilacs hovered here and there. When skin can greet air directly with loving kindness, no bite, no thievery, that's my kind of day. So I knew it was only a matter of time before I would see them. It always starts with just a quick glimpse of something in my peripheral vision. Off to the right, for some reason. A little zip of menace. Acid circling in a tiny, malevolent, evasive flick. Then it's gone. Will it return? I boosted Tom Petty in my earbuds. You belong among the wildflowers. I closed my eyes for a few paces and again inhaled the pollen-infused air. When I opened them, it returned for another pass. To the left, to the right, around, then closer. Bzz. Dear flies, my absolute nemesis, why do I hate them so? I have come to know they show up in the early days of summer. The final days of May feel too early, but maybe not. The first year we arrived at the end of their life cycle, the next summer, I was introduced to them full on. Last year, I thought if I could learn more about them, I might stave off the fear with knowledge. No, that made it worse. The deer fly has razor sharp teeth and it truly wants blood, yours and mine. It circles your head to drive you crazy. It lands and takes a big bite. One neighbor told me her arm swelled up to twice its size after being bit. Another, one of the most dedicated walkers I know, told me her strategy when they approach. I wave my arms around my head like this. She demonstrated a slow, dancey sort of backstroke move that went up and around her head, one arm followed by the other. And I keep doing it for about 30 yards until it goes away. I also learned that they congregate around fresh water streams, and those little pools of standing water that line the roads here or there. I can't go on a walk in any direction without passing at least half a dozen of them. When I considered the frequent ambush locations, I realized they were all right near a pool or stream. They also flock to the color blue, which they stupidly think might be water. After learning all of this, 
My first order of business was eliminating the color blue from any of my running clothes. A bright blue headband flung to the back of the closet, light blue t-shirt, indoor only, my perfect royal blue running shorts that are neither too baggy nor too tight, now relegated for the exercise bike in our bedroom. Over these past three years, I've also shockingly begun to try to make friends with a few of the insect species who are our neighbors. I've come to accept that we both live in this place. They have their jobs and I have mine. Ants crawl, crickets sing. Monarchs demonstrate the miracle of transformation. I suppose other caterpillars and moths do this too. Grasshoppers leap. Even bees, though they do buzz and dart and sting, do have their important role of pollination, and they are seeking flowers, not me. I have never liked spiders either, just seeing one makes me jump, but they do very important jobs too, eating other bugs. I appreciate the grand scheme of it all more than I ever have. All of this, however, is just rationale. Me trying to convince myself about something that is not who I am, and that is afraid of bugs. I just am. I can't help it. I wish I weren't. I tell myself not to care. But I do. It's the way I'm made. As evidenced by my distress by those days in the backseat of the car. On the next glorious warm day, when my skin and my head and my nerves were all happy, 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 and as I approached one soggy marsh area, predictably the circling began. This time, I was listening to Abigail Thomas reading Three Dog Life. I've discovered Abigail Thomas. I know. Where have I been? And I am smitten. What a voice, so gentle and lilting and wise and unique, assuredly herself, and facing life with her husband after his dramatic brain injury, after he amazingly survives being hit by a car and at last comes home, he then begins experiencing relentless paranoia, imagining that she has moved everything around, changed their home that the Gestapo or Secret Service or someone is out to get him. Why worry about a deer fly when this is what some people have gone through? Yet the deer fly in me, that was my reality and my here and now. The first one that had zeroed in on me gave up quickly for some reason. I told myself, this is a beautiful, sunshiny day. I am happy to be running. I love where I live. I feel inspired by the outdoors, have so many blooming flowers and chirping birds to meet. Just keep going. And I did. But then after I passed the little waterfall, its downstream creek, and began heading up the big hill, the circling began again. I won't care, I told myself. I won't care. I waved my arms slowly, continuously. Cars passing by were probably highly entertained. At least waving my arms would make me more visible when they rounded the blind curve in the road. But this little monster stuck with me. I kept up my slow backstroke, up and over my head, one arm, then the other. It would zoom in from the left, change direction, careen in from the right. We dueled. And within me, again, always within me, 
the internal buzz that resonated in angry competition with the exterior incursion. I ran and waved as I climbed the hill, adrenaline fueling me beyond the point where I often slow to a walk. Panting, I at last had to slow my pace, but I still waved and waved. Sometimes when I see where the little bugger lands, the slap I dish out is so satisfying, if I can catch it. If this one landed, I couldn't tell, but at least I didn't feel that sharp sting either. I may be a slow thinker, a pensive ponderer, but in the midst of this threat, this panic-infused attack, I am on guard, ready to take out my energy in a furious snap if I can catch it, defeat it. Is it worth all this? My run? The fresh air? The vistas? The inspiration? Does the fear and anxiety match the love? As I got to the top of the hill, at last far enough away from one water source and closer to the next one, I thought, that's it. I am tired of this. I hate this feeling of anxiety. I hate the flies. I hate that I can't stop hating them. I hate that I thrash and jump. I hate the fear of being tormented and bitten. Most of all, I simply hate the circling and the buzzing. I think if I was 100% assured that the little monster would never land and never bite, that circling and buzzing would still drive me mad. That's a lot of hate. I give up, I thought to myself. Why do I have to be brave? Maybe my calling is to stop being brave. At that moment, a van past me advertising its extermination business. Nervous ticks. Ha! I thought. Is this a sign? One of those wormhole moments that I'm onto something? Then, before the van was even out of sight, Abigail Thomas, continuing on with her story through all this torment, said something I felt as specifically directed to me in that moment. Nothing is undone before it's time. Wow. She nailed it. Shall I ever accept who I am? A grown woman who hates bugs. Love who I am? A person with irrational fears. Just try to be me. What does that even mean? To live is to experience torment every fucking stripe, isn't it? And flies, I am well aware, are only the beginning. After opening day of deer fly season, year four, I decided that the choice was indeed to be brave no longer, to say no when I don't want to do something, to give in to my fears. I went to check out a few local gyms to see which one I might want to join. Yes, Head indoors when everyone else in Maine is heading outdoors. Here are a few of the things that have happened since my anti-brave declaration. I waved goodbye to Phil as he set off on that trek to bring his mom to Cape Cod. I have ejected or crushed more critters than I have yet encountered in this house through the three years prior here, including that wasp on a chair right next to our bed, a tick off my arm after a walk to see Bob Links with a friend, and even a deer fly sitting on the wall 
right as I was headed to bed. I've given in to bouts of crying when I feel sorry for myself about all my mental and physical demons. And I've sat on my meditation cushion and returned my thoughts to my breath again and again, in spite of almost dozing off, holding steady through a phone alarm and Rocky's persistent meows, even hitting pause on the silence of my timer to answer the phone, and then returning to feel my breath again. And I've decided it would be a nice day to go out for a run. Thank you. Thank you for listening, Catherine. I enjoyed every every bit of it. Thank you. Thank you. Mm-hmm. There were so many good moments in that story and the essay. You have vivid descriptions of things from crouching down with Rocky to see what's on the carpet to describing the environment where you're taking your walks or jogging to the arm motions as they're with you. Going, mm-hmm. yeah, that's what I, I'm going to do going forward if I ever yeah. come across some, <laughs> some deer flies. And I laughed internally when I heard nervous ticks. I thought that was hysterical. That's such a How good company that? name. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I had and, never seen that one before. I haven't seen it since. It wasn't that long ago, but yeah. Well, if you're listening, Mr. Exterminator, good job on the marketing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really. Well, let me ask you a few things then, because I, I just I couldn't stop thinking of all the themes that you keep bringing up um, as you're writing. And one of the bigger ones is, you know, the being brave and maybe just being brave as being who you really are and coming to grips with the things that we consider imperfections, but maybe just normal characteristics to others. What do you think of that? Like just being brave as being who you are. Yeah, it is a whole other thought that I kind of at last came to. There's something about going back to the the thing that feels like if it feels easier, that must be a cop out. Like that's not being brave. I don't know exactly where that comes from. I I mean, I think about this stuff a lot, as you can tell. But I I think that on a certain level, it is brave to just accept who we are. I mean, there's a lot of control stuff that happens <laughs> when we can't control our world, our environment. How do we just come to accept it and um, I don't know, accept it in a way that's also not sort of resentful or passive aggressive. I don't know. I feel like passive aggressive is my, it's my go-to. So I, I try to be aware of that one too. I don't know. Am I getting at your question at all? I'm not sure. You are. I mean, you're you're trying to work through it, and I'm trying to work through it as well. After I, yeah. I heard the the whole essay, and I'm like, is it brave to just accept that we don't have to be brave? Is yeah. that the whole? I know. Like, right. Is it a loop? Is a loop in itself? <laughs> I, I'm not sure. Right. And I'm trying to wrap my head around it as well. Um, yeah, like what is bravery? Right. It's kind of the question. Like meaning saying no and 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 giving into yeah. one's fears. That that's also right. a, a moment where you reach 
maturity maybe in your thought process is that I don't have to do this if I don't want to, you know, I don't have to go to blah, 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 if I don't want to, or if I I don't want to, I don't have to dress this way because I don't feel like it anymore. I mean, honestly, the pandemic showed me how much I hate wearing pants with zippers and buttons. (laughs) I just want (laughs) pull-ups. I know. I'm not saying that's an act of bravery, but it, it, it is moments of realization where you're like, I don't know if I want to do this anymore. It doesn't work for me. Yeah. So. The ways that we give in to being ourselves. Right. Yeah. Because right. we think we should, like that horrible word should, we should mm-hmm. always be doing something else. And I've always been a person who's been very good at beating myself up about what I'm not doing that I should. So yeah, would it be brave to give up some of those shoulds and just go with it? I I think that this is another side of it that I've thought of that I don't think was necessarily in the essay, but the indecision, it's when I feel those two things, like the love and the fear, I think do I go out and risk the damn flies because I love being outside, which is, by the way, one of the little ironies that like I used to hate being outside and now I love it. I mean, I do love it. So we do change Mm -hmm. who we are certainly changes. That's it. One of the things you said was, you know, sometimes you have to sacrifice something in order to do something you love. Mm, and yeah. I really like that because, yeah, love comes with a little bit of sacrifice. You have to make a choice and decide yeah. what do I need to give up in order to make sure that I keep doing the thing that I love. Yeah, the cosmic balance of it all. Mm-hmm. We and are I like what you said. I believe grace is rarely bestowed without some sort of cosmic balance. Mm-hmm. Tell me more about what you were thinking with that statement. Yeah, it, it's that. It's that I feel so so entirely grateful for where we are now and um in the the life that we're getting to live at this moment um and the thing is i i there's that superstitious part of one i mean it's not even superstitious there's always the converse to everything in life there is the shadow there's the inverse of it and when things are good they don't stay good forever And I think the other side of it that I try to remind myself of is when things are bad, they won't stay bad forever. But I think that some of us have the tendency to feel like when things are bad, it's going to always suck. And then we also do sometimes think when it's good, it should just stay this way. So accepting that give and take is, I think, part of the cosmic balance that I try and just have in my sphere of consciousness as I move through the world. Um, yeah. Anyways. It's funny. I, I just wanted to also let you know that as you were reading, a daddy long leg appeared in the corner in my office <laughs> and is ah! sitting there watching me now doing Oh, this. no. Oh, no. <laughs> How are you about bugs, uh, Catherine? Uh, well, initially it was terrifying because when you move into a new place, you get to learn and meet the new bugs <laughs> that didn't exist yeah. in the previous place. And I know. They were bigger. One of them jumped out mm-hmm. of my laundry room closet and it was like a little military bug. It had colors on it I'd never seen before, like almost wow. like army. Like what? We're in Canada. <laughs> this doesn't exist here. What is this? Um, or those like long creepy crawlies that I found one on my guitar case once and it was almost oh, no. the length of my finger. Ugh. And I saw it and I go, what the heck is this? Oh, no, I couldn't yeah. even get the words out. I was almost 
or whatever. It was just terrible. But then you get used to them and then they become Mm. part of your environment and you realize they have function. They're minding their own business and they're actually dealing with the other stuff. They're they're cleaning up the the smaller bugs. Yes. Yes. Whatever it is that they're doing. So I stay out of their way. They stay out of mine. Yeah. We're good. I just, I don't like the flying insects outside, like yeah. a, a big buzzing thing, like, ugh, yeah, because they're unpredictable and you don't know where they're going to land. And that's the one thing I'm not too good with. So I'm with you on that. Like, stay away from me. <laughs> that is what I will say. I remember having a conversation like that with you in Banff because we were walking on one of the trails that we went on. Maybe it was like a around Lake Louise. And we started this discussion because you said it's the unpredictability of where they're going to go. And I said, yes, that's exactly it. And the buzzing. And you said, yes, I hate the buzz. So I felt like that was one of the reasons (laughs) I was like, Catherine is the right person for me to talk (laughs) with about this whole essay because kindred spirits and the buzzing and the unpredictability, like, yeah. Yeah. I prefer the ones that crawl because at least you know where they're headed. Crawling, and you can just, yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. Which is why ticks <laughs> are an interesting case study because, in a way, ticks are very boring. They walk incredibly slowly. You know, they have this weird way of walking. You can. I always think, is that a tick? Is that a tick? But when it is a tick, I you know it. You know, it's like to me not a question. And I had never even really seen a tick until I moved to Maine. Now, I a little, maybe once or twice when I was a kid, my cousin lived in the country in um, Connecticut. And mm-hmm. so she would pull them off of her cat there. And I was a little freaked out about it, but I never had seen one. And here, they're everywhere. Like, I feel like I can't look at the grass without seeing a tick. I am exaggerating, but still, I've had ticks on me a few times since we've moved here. And that's the thing that's a little scary. It's like finding one on you. I'm with you on that. I don't like things crawling on me. It's like, you're not welcome here. Please leave. Go, go. (laughs) Go And those I will kill because, you know, they have disease and stuff. Some Mm -hmm. of them I try and allow them to live. And I know I've talked about that bug zooka a million times in my newsletter. So that is hysterical. (laughs) Bug zooka. (laughs) It's very good. I'll put a link in the show notes so everyone can check it out. So people can see what it looks like because it's really awesome. I love it. You have an interesting husband who asks interesting questions. (laughs) Parlor questions. He loves the parlor questions. He does. Yes. yes. Uh, And one of the things you're talking about, him going back and and looking up his piano teacher and and unfortunately finding out that he passed away. So I thought that was an interesting part of the essay. Um, Does he do that to you often? Does he put you on the spot and make you think really hard about (laughs) He does come up with parlor questions frequently. And and I'm usually stumped. And I usually like bring it back like a couple days later or go, what about this one? He'll say, yeah, that's why I think that's an interesting one. So let me ask you something else then. Um, It's the way you expressed acid. Um, yes, absolutely. It's their acid circling in a tiny, malevolent, invasive yeah. form. I was trying to think, like, what are they? It's like, they're just awful. They are awful. They uh, have been known to just literally take chunks out of people's foreheads, heads, if you're out canoeing in the yeah. summer. And uh, it's the time where the deer flies are out and you're not wearing protection, like a hat or a net or something. Yeah. Good luck. You're You're not going to walk out of there with all of your skin parts. I know. (laughs) I know. Well, and you know, what's funny. So also since 
the nervous ticks Abigail Thomas wormhole day. Uh-huh. We have an exercise bike and I honestly kind of hate it, but it's good exercise. So I do it. So then I had taken to, there is one walk that's less water and less problematic. So I thought I'll go on the one up and around the other way there. And I had done that a few times to the extent that like, you know, I put on my hat, I have like another type, another color headband and a hat and all kinds of stuff. And I sometimes spray who knows what like nasty smelling things. I do try and do like the more natural (laughs) nasty smelling things. But anyways, and I had been fairly unscathed. So I was starting to feel a little like, oh, I can just go on my run. Well, Sunday I went on my run and I had on this jacket that is supposed to be insect repellent. Well, it was getting hot, so I took my jacket off. So then as I got down to a certain area, sure enough, exactly like what I described. And now that I've written about it, I've like scared myself (laughs) into even experiencing (laughs) it yet again. And so the same thing, it starts circling and I thought, okay, I'm putting my hood up and then I just Again, I won't care. Well, it gets right up in your face. It's like, yeah, it's right there. And you're exactly right. It's going to like bite your face. So I turned around and I came home. And then then I have the indecision. Like, do I, I don't know. I'm just going over old territory now. But like, do I go out? Do I not? It's a silly, it's a silly, ridiculous kind of consternation. But there it is. But you know what? It's your, It's, it's mine. yours. That's that's why it matters. I mean, we're always going to say, "Oh, there's so many bigger problems right. in the world. Why am I worrying about yeah. this?" Well, it's it's your it's in your environment. It's in your face right <laughs> now. Literally, it's in your face. I know. <laughs> I know. You have to deal with it, and that's what you're dealing with, and that's why it's important. And let's not yeah. forget that. And it and it becomes mm-hmm. metaphorical for bigger things that you know, right? Will will yes. circle us someday. So. You said something about. Have you ever really been at ease? Yeah. Is that a question you only asked yourself as a kid? Is that something you keep asking yourself now? Um, that's something I more ask myself now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just the whole why, why do I have to? I think that's part of the feeling my gut thing. You know, mm-hmm. as I have um, really worked diligently, not just with writing, but with all kinds of stuff that I now am doing some physical therapy, PT stuff, uh, all kinds of tests to deal with unpleasant GI situations um, that are a result of the fact that I am so happy to be here and to have a smaller rectum instead of no rectum, which some people have no rectum and they still live. I had a Mm -hmm. wonderful episode with the woman who I've gotten to be friends with and she is survived colon cancer and um so yeah the whole the whole gut thing has been a physical thing as well as an emotional thing so I feel like I'm either working on the physical side of it or the mental emotional side of it and I realize like I'm a tight person (laughs) I'm tight in my gut I am always tense And when I do sort of start to do deep breathing techniques and some of this physical letting go stuff, it becomes hugely metaphorical. Like, can I just let go of some of the stuff that has tormented me? So it is extremely metaphorical, the the whole 
mind body connection. Yeah. And the fact that you are feeling it in your gut. Mm-hmm. There's we all feel something in different parts yeah. of our bodies and. And, and depending on where it is, it shows where you carry all of that yeah. pain, emotion, energy. Yeah. And when you have a hard time listening to your gut, it, it could mean that you can't listen to your inner voice sometimes. Yes. And, and the indecision that comes, as you've said right. to me in the past, where there's a lot of things where I'm not sure which one to do, which one to take. And then so you're always on the fence. Yes. Um, and it's incredible where, where people hold energy, where they in, eventually develop diseases. Um, and I strongly believe that. I think there's uh, something to be uh, discovered in, in that area. And, and for each individual to really sit back and go, where is the pain accumulating when I sense something or feel something in my body? We don't spend a lot of time in our bodies. I find we spend a lot of time in our heads right. thinking and analyzing. And going then back into the body is a whole other exercise. Like I, I think for me, it's all in my heart. I feel it all, mm-hmm. all the way here if there's a like a difficult conversation or expectation that isn't met. Uh, you know, there's this element of being heartbroken all the time because you yeah. you don't get what you want. Yeah. Uh, and so for me, it's like it's, it's in here. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, you tap into something that is at the core of a conundrum that I have been thinking about more closely recently, which is um, the fact that mental and emotional struggles and where we hold tension in our bodies and, and all of that can manifest into physical problems alongside the belief that I grew up with that only what exists in our head is what we create. So the opposite of of that, the opposite of the we create all the problems in our bodies is sort of like that we have the power to get rid of it in our minds, like get rid of it in our minds, get rid of it in our body. So I have been trying to purge that idea while simultaneously Acknowledging that there is a connection between, for example, very strongly, our brains and our guts. There's more, mm-hmm. is well, I don't even know how many or what, but there are a whole bunch of, a shitload, if you will, of <laughs> nerves in our gut that influence our brain. Yes. And yes. I do think that I'm a gut person. So that's been a really weird, difficult thing to try and pull apart. Like, how much is my brain impacting my gut and how much is my gut impacting my brain and how any of those are not necessarily things I have control over, but yet that I do have some kind of influence or it's all, do you hear what I'm saying? I'm not saying it very well. I'm trying not to interrupt because I know what you're, where you're going with this, this, this idea that your brain and your thoughts can influence everything in your reality, whether it's your physical being or the um, situations that you will attract in your life or the things that you'll start paying attention to that you didn't pay attention to before your brain Mm -hmm. creates all that. Your brain is responsible for a lot of it. When you start to get into that mindset and say, oh yeah, I have a lot more control over things than I thought before, or mm-hmm. I can manifest something new or th- look at something differently because I'm choosing to. 
we have to give our brains a lot of a lot more credit uh, and, and to say that our lives can change based on what our thoughts are. And yet, when our lives get screwed up, it's not necessarily our fault that we have caused that. That's the Correct. part that I struggle with because when you internalize that to such a high level of influence, you can really go too far with it. Because sometimes we just get sick because we get sick. You know, so when I'm talking about this, the sickness part of it, mm -hmm. you know. But do you believe that you're what you learned as a child caused your illness? No. 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 Okay. No. I think that what I learned as a child taught me to not trust my body. How? By telling me that my body was not real. I learned that only spiritual reality is true. And that we don't have to believe or accept what our body tells us. So you shouldn't pay attention to it. So that's why, for me, the lesson has been starting to pay attention to it. I have worked hard to purge a lot of the ideas that I grew up with that taught me to not trust myself. And so now as I trust myself again, it's accepting back in that brain impact over our physicality is not 100% true, but it's not 0% true either. You know, it's like living somewhere in that middle space. Right, yeah. Right, yeah. Right. Do you think that you'll ever write about this? Oh, yeah. That's what, that's that's what I'm what trying to do. That's what I'm trying to do. Yeah, I think that's cathartic. I think it will feel good to put it on paper and then to uh, read it and to put it out there. And in the there. hopes that other people will benefit from hearing the story. Maybe other people are going through something like this. I'm sure they are. Yeah. Um, and they need support or just the validation or the camaraderie or whatever comes from hearing a similar yeah. story. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the it's funny that we made our way to this topic through the essay because sometimes I think well this one has nothing to do with that but see it it does all kind all of come connected. around it comes around it does yeah. I'm yeah. very thankful that you were able to well he did such a good job of, of reading it and you have great narrator narration skills oh and, thank uh, you <laughs> I when it's my own stuff I that's the I love it I just love it you got into it and it felt like listening to an audiobook and you had, you know, the dynamics and the, the highs and the lows. And it, I was in there with you 100 percent. So uh, thank, thank you so you. much for, for sharing that. And I'm sure your audience will also appreciate hearing this and probably wants to hear more. So <laughs> I think it's just a, a, so. an incentive to just keep working on this and, and keep producing more writing content and, and putting it out there and seeing where it goes. I think it's always exciting. Well, thank you, Catherine, so much. I I really enjoyed this conversation a lot. It is always a joy to talk with you, and it has been especially delightful that you have indulged me in talking about me. And 
all it's these. Always an honor and a pleasure <laughs> talking to you and knowing that I can be in your life in this way oh, 14 man. years later and we're I still know. going strong and it's awesome. Audio, <laughs> audio is where it's at, keeping us together. That's right. Yeah. Thank you so much, Michelle. As I close this episode for you at the beginning of July, what has happened here since late May when I started that essay? Rocky is still on patrol, sitting guard, looking under the stove just this morning. Phil is home again, his mom safely delivered to her beloved summer spot on Cape Cod. And since he's been home, not one bug in the house. Go figure. I do hope you've enjoyed my little essay and conversation with Catherine Vasilopoulos, who is such a beautiful, kind, and curious soul, always wanting to plumb the depths of a topic. See how that deep listening thing comes into play again and again? You just never know what touch point moment in our lives goes on to make a difference for someone else. And I am so glad that that wormhole that opened in Banff has looped back to connect us again and again. I put a link to her podcast, And So She Left, in the show notes. I do hope that you will check it out. I'm not usually in the practice of promoting products, but if you happen to be prone to bug heebie-jeebies as I am, the Bugzooka is one of the best inventions ever. I'm going to put a link to that in my show notes as well. And only a couple days ago did I actually decide to go and look up that nervous ticks van that I saw. It looks right up my alley. It is a family-run business who uses a natural solution of essential oils to spray their perimeter of your lawn so that you can enjoy the outdoors with less worry. I might just have to give them a call. I hope that you will follow this podcast on your podcast app of choice so that new episodes will pop in for you every time I release them, which is on the first Tuesday of each month. I also put out a monthly podcast newsletter, more musings loosely oriented around the topic that I have chosen. You can sign up for that at michellerado.com. You can send me a note there too if you'd like and let me know your thoughts on the podcast or on writing or on memoir or on life. Special thanks as always to my dear husband, Phil Rado, the asker of parlor questions and supporting cast member of most of my musings and the composer of my theme music, Make Me Brave. Most of all, thank you for making it to the end of yet another episode and for one of the greatest gifts we can give to each other. And that is daring to listen. Catch you next month. And nothing's gonna break my fall There's nothing in the protocol It's like swimming up waterfall Or taking away the ground Taking away the ground It's like taking away the ground